News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. What is going on in Portland? You know, so many of us here in Metro Vancouver have spent time in that Oregon city, and we love it there. Uh, so we watch with genuine interest and concern what is unfolding there with these protests. Uh, they've been active for almost two months, but they continue to almost intensify. And now we have these concerns about unlabeled or unknown federal law enforcement now getting involved too. So what is happening there? Joining us now is Paul Violas, who's a law enforcement and security analyst with CBS. We're talking more about this. Good morning, Paul. Good morning, Simi. Hope you had a nice weekend. I did. Thank you. Can you explain to us what is happening in Portland right now? I can. It can be summed up very quickly by saying one of the, the most gross, overt, blatant lack of leadership and public management in the history of this country. That is basically the way to sum that up, Simi. Okay. In what ways? Well, let's, the, the key, as in Canada, the key in the U.S. is that we're a nation of laws. Uh, we know that there's a disparity between, and I'm not being semantical, but there's a disparity between protests and riots. Now, protests are key to the very fabric of freedom here in the United States, as in, obviously, in Canada. Mm-hmm. Police will, defend, will, will risk their lives to defend those to protest against them. What we have, though, are rioters that have hijacked the protest in Portland. Now, by law, and I, 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 real quickly, Simi, by law, in the United States, I'm not overly familiar with this in Canada, but in the United States, if you are going to protest, you have to have a permit by the municipality. The municipality will then pay for police overtime. You have to cite what you're going to protest about, where you're going to be, the times, etc. You are permitted to do that. You are not permitted to destroy public property, to set it on fire, and to destroy businesses, and to assault police. You're not permitted to do that. That's what's happening. It's being allowed. It's been allowed for a period of time to the point where since state government and local government is not protecting the citizens or are not protecting the citizens of that great city in Portland, the federal government then, by law, has to step in to do that, which is what you're seeing. Right. Okay. So that's what we're seeing here. But now there are concerns about the federal law enforcement that's there, too, because they're not labeled. You don't know where they're from. What's going on with the arrests and things happening there? The only thing that's not labeled are their names. And the reason why the names of officers and agents is not going to be portrayed. And I do support this, oddly enough, and normally wouldn't. But because it's bringing more, it's bringing threats to the individual families. Now, if you have a, you know, a name like Smith or Jones, it's not an issue. But some of these names can easily be Googled and looked up. And you're finding people showing up at these cops' houses. So well, they have to. Well, what department are like they that. from, though? Like, what... I'm sorry, I didn't hear you say that. I said, what department are they from, though, for federal law enforcement? Because I thought, I thought you couldn't deploy the military uh, domestically. It'd have to be the National Guard. Well, you can, the, the National Guard will come from the CEO of the state, which is the governor. Now, if the governor chooses and elects not to deploy the National Guard and the health and well-being and safety of a community is still in jeopardy, the federal government then can deploy federal sources, federal sources. Now, that could be the military. It could be agents of the military. Uh, so it, it could be federal officers. It's up at the discretion of the federal government at that time. But those three things that I mentioned before have right. to fail 
before that happens. Right. So then do we know then you talk about them being from the department of the federal government, like what department do people not have the right to know where these soldiers or law enforcement are coming from? Actually, they don't have a right to know. It's not that they have to display it. It's all at this point. When it gets to this point, Simi, and, and this is not a place we want to be in. And I agree with you, and I feel the, you know, the apprehension on this, and it's well justified on mm-hmm. your part. But when we get to this point, and which we don't want to, we also now have to get to a position where the people we're putting online, we have to be concerned with officer safety at this point. The men and women that are going to stand that line, we have to protect them as well. That means protecting their identities. They're not, they are not, and I've been watching tapes, Simi, they are not doing anything outside of the use of force matrix. They have not exceeded in any way, shape, or form what law enforcement can and should do in situations like this. It's just they're not being identified. And they're not being identified to protect their identities on purpose. Yeah, but you can see how that makes people uncomfortable, right? Is it if you have uni- unidentified people acting as law enforcement, then the, the thing about America, which is so great, Paul, is that ability to, you know, say, I, I need to know what's happening. I have the right to know what is happening to me in terms of the government. Agreed. And you don't know what's happening if you can't identify the people. Simi, you and I are again on the same page. I cannot disagree with you. But this is why I say this, and I've been saying this for the last two months relative to what's going on in Portland. Don't let it get to this point. Please, I beseech you, don't let it get to this point. But unfortunately, we have allowed it to get to this point, and this is what it looks like when it gets here. I don't like it. You don't like it. None of us like it, but it is what it is. It's going to stay this way until we get some order in Portland. All right, Paul. Well, thanks for talking about it with us this morning. Always a pleasure, ma'am. Have a wonderful day, This is Mornings with Simi. All right, let's talk about how good we are when it comes to fighting COVID-19. I think, BC, we did such a good job, and I almost want to use that in the past tense there, but I wonder if we're still doing a good job. Are enough people still buying into the physical distancing and the wearing masks in a lot of cases? I wanted to talk more about this with our Nikki Reitmeyer, who joins us now. Nikki, what do you think? I've seen too many cases, I feel, of people no longer doing as much social distancing as they used to. Yeah, it's funny, you know, I was talking to a neighbor the other day, we ran into each other in the parkade and when we were just kind of chatting away and he said, look, I'm so sick of this COVID-19 thing. I just want life to get back to normal again. I said, yeah, you know, I, I think we all agree with you in that sense. And then he kind of said, you know, I, I I don't wear a mask. I'm sick of wearing the masks and, you know, I, I'm sick of this whole social distancing. And I went, okay, hold on a second there. You know, back up. I still am wearing, yeah, <laughs> that's where I think we separate in, in our thinking. But I'm definitely noticing a fatigue in people no longer really wanting to wear the mask as much when they go out. And the social distancing, I think, is a big one, too, because we were separate from each other for so long that now on beautiful weekends, like the one that we just had where it's hot, you want to go to the park, you want to go to the beach, you want to see your friends, you want to see your family, people are starting to come together once again, and they're throwing that social distancing out the window or physical distancing out the window thinking, hey, we're in phase three now. We don't need to worry about this as much. Everything's fine, right? And you go, well, yeah, dot, dot, dot. It's fine for the ish for the time being. But if, you know, you keep up this behavior, then that second wave that we keep hearing about 
could come down the pipe. And of course, we don't want that to happen. And we do know that the numbers are inching up a little bit. And we know that people being lax on physical distancing and the following the rules is what caused this outbreak in Kelowna, right? So mm-hmm, we know yeah. that the some of the problems that we have right now are because people aren't following the rules. Uh, and that's a tough one. Like the mask wearing, I understand not everybody wants to wear it, fine. But if most people wear it, then I think that's okay. You know, it was funny because the government messaging really hasn't changed on this the whole time where, you know, you have, at least since the beginning, you know, once once they said, let's wear masks, everybody, their messaging has been pretty consistent. And, you know, Dr. Bonnie Henry said in her Friday press conference, again, that, you know, you should be wearing masks, especially if you're going to be in a situation where there's an increased risk of exposure. Listen to this. If you are taking transit right now, you should be wearing a face covering unless there's a very valid reason why you can't. We know that sometimes it's hard to tell when people cannot wear a mask, and it may be around physical disability, not being able to put one on or take one off, for example. Um, There are very few medical reasons why people can't wear masks, and we do know, and I just want to put this out there as well, since you've given me the opportunity, um, you know, masks are safe to wear. They do not cause you to become hypoxic. They do not increase your risk of, of keeping viruses or bacteria or other things in. Um, you know, they do not exacerbate uh, asthma or other lung conditions. Um, you need to find one that's comfortable, that you can take on or off as needed, and sometimes it takes some time to get used to wearing them, and I, I know that from my own experience, but also my my mother was telling me this recently too, that uh, she and my father are very good now about wearing their mask outside all the time. So yes, we should be using masks on transit all the time. I do, and I expect others to as well. Now I do as well. So I was out and about shopping on just up and down kind of Broadway on Saturday, I guess, Nikki. And so I stopped in at the used bookstore there because I need some used books. I just need books right now. You're a big reader. I'm a big reader. So I stopped in at the used bookstore and it was only three people at a time in the store, which is great. So, you know, we lined Mm -hmm. up outside and I had my mask on too. But then when I was in the store, so one of only three people in the actual store, there was still one person who just didn't seem to care about the rules, like came and stood right next to me, checking out the same shelf, even though I had waited until somebody else had finished checking out that section before I went and stood there. And then like passed directly in front of me without saying like, excuse me or anything. And I just thought, man, some people still aren't getting it. You know, which is funny because I think that we've well adapted to that little social dance, haven't we? Where yeah, like don't run into someone in an aisle at the store. Give me some space. Oh, you. Oh no, you need a little smile to each other, and you kind of dance this way, dance that way, and then let them pass. I think we all pretty well adapted to that. So I'm surprised that there's still some people who are just seemingly oblivious to it. I know that really surprised me too. But fortunately, two out of three of us in the store were wearing our masks and whatever. And I thought, listen, if the third person doesn't want to, then don't. Right? As long as other people, enough people wear them. But you talked about transit. Have you seen the TransLink masks, by the way? I have seen pictures of them. I haven't actually seen Adorable. them in the I flesh. love them. I love them. And I've been trying to buy one, but they're on back order because they are so incredibly popular. Uh, but I think at the malls and things, from what we've been hearing, is that not people are either forgetting or just getting too relaxed about the social distancing. 
Well, yeah, you know, Janet Brown, a CKNW reporter, said this weekend that she was at a mall in, in Metro Vancouver. She didn't specify which mall she was at necessarily, but said that the majority of people there were not wearing masks. And then in the comments underneath the, the post that she'd made on social media, you had other people chiming in and also saying, you know, yeah, I was out, you know, and we saw that the majority of people weren't wearing masks. Although interesting, I saw one woman said that she was at Guilford Mall and while she was wearing masks, they noted that they there was a certain store they were trying to get into and they weren't allowed into the store unless they were wearing masks. Interesting. And the employees of the store were actually giving masks to people who didn't have them. So there's still some enforcement happening, I suppose, on an individual business basis. But a lot of people in the comments on her social media posts saying, yeah, you know, I was at the mall recently and, and I didn't see pe- a person wearing a mask and, and so forth. So do you think, I think, per is my opinion, that people are getting too lax especially about the social distancing. What do you think? Yeah, I know. I think it really comes back to that conversation I had with my neighbor where you have people just saying, look, I'm, I'm tired of this. I want life to go back to normal once again, which we all do. Of course we all do. And they're just fatigued. They're just tired of having to deal with you know, bringing a mask with you every time you go to the store and then putting the mask on, especially, you know, it's getting hot now. It's not always comfortable to wear the mask. Uh, one thing I found is it, when I wear my glasses, I, I often wear contacts, sometimes glasses, and you put the mask on and then your glasses fog, fog up, up and you go, ah, oh, yes. you know, you're, you're in the aisle in the store and you're kind yes. of taking them off, putting them back on again, put, <laughs> take the glasses off just so you can see what the product is that you're trying to buy. So I think it's little things like that where people have just had enough. They just want this to be a somewhat normal summer once again. But unfortunately, as a result, we're it's we're not. sliding a little bit in our in what we're supposed to be doing, and as a result, we're seeing a little bit of an increase in the numbers. And you mentioned Kelowna; I think that's a really good example of people wanting life to get back to normal once again. Saying, "Hey, you know, let's let's travel around this great province. Let's of have ours. a party. Like that's what they did. Let's they have had parties. parties. Yeah, and it's crazy. Lo and behold." We had a bit of a COVID-19 outbreak there, and I feel bad for the people in Kelowna, to be fair, because, you know, they, they'd gotten their numbers down so low, and, and they were having such a, you know, such a, a good effort there. And then all of a sudden, you have people from other areas, tourists coming and, and sort of bringing the virus back again. So, you know, I, I do understand that people want life to get normal back to normal once again, because, hey, you know, we want the same thing, too. But there certainly seems to be a fatigue. There's an interesting yeah. study about young people in particular, 20 to 29, where the number's really increasing. This is Mornings with Simi. The fact of the matter is there is unpaid rent uh, during that COVID period, and uh, certainly landlords are looking to collect it. That is the CEO of Landlord BC, David Hutniak. He was speaking with us on Friday. Both landlords and tenants are worried about the future of the market as eviction protections and rent deferrals start to wind down. And this, of course, despite the fact that unemployment is still at around 13% and so many people in the tourism and hospitality industry still don't know what the months ahead mean for their industries and whether or not their jobs are going to return. So the government has announced, though, that the ban on evictions is going to be lifted and that they that renters who were not paying their full rent are going to have to start doing that uh, with the goal towards completion in July of next year. So we thought, let's talk to uh, renters about this as well. Mazdaq Garab Navaz is with us now, steering committee member of the Vancouver Tenants Union. Mazdaq, thank you very much for being here. Thanks for having me. 
So what do you feel about this? Because it's got to be an awkward situation. Is Are tenants going to be able to deal with this? Yeah, so I think, first of all, that uh, it spoke volumes when Minister of Housing Selena Robinson didn't even hold a press conference when announcing this. Uh, I think she was expecting tough questions for a terrible policy. Um, Look, I think the economic damage of this pandemic, uh, the B.C. government has decided, is going to fall on the shoulders of working families. Uh, this is not about folks who were irresponsible, irresponsible, nor were they cheats. Um, they were sort of they were the hardest hit from the pandemic. They lost jobs through no fault of their own, and they're the most vulnerable. Um, so uh, having accumulated rent debt built up, uh, having to be paid on top of your rent during a global economic depression is not going to be feasible for folks who were already living paycheck to paycheck before the pandemic. Um, and I have to wonder if the minister thinks that these folks somehow are not only going to go out and find jobs, uh, but they're going to find jobs that are going to have higher wages in an economy that has 13% unemployment. Now, so I but- think it's an outrageous policy that's going to lead to mass evictions. So what do you think is the alternative here? The government keeps saying, well, the vast majority of renters were still paying their rent in full. What do you think they should be doing? So um, you're right. I think the numbers there are, you know, we're talking 12% of folks who paid partial rent and 3% who paid no rent. So um, when they were designing the temporary rental supplement uh, program, they sort of announced that they were designing the program to be uh, for 100% of rental households to be able to be supported. Um, But only 15% of renter households ended up actually applying for it. So that this means that the government of British Columbia was preparing to, you know, hand out uh, support to renters uh, in a much bigger way. There's significant funds that were earmarked uh that they they are kind of sitting on and so um they need to do the right thing and keep their promise uh to renters uh not continue helping landlords to evict and they should use funds to cancel the rent that that these these folks have do you think there's still more to come on this Uh, and i know that's something that david hutniak said too that the market still hasn't kind of fully shaken out with the impacts of this um, I, I do think so. I mean, I, uh, if you listen to the uh, finance minister on last Tuesday with the economic update, one of the questions she got actually about uh, canceling rent debt uh, at that press conference, she left the door open to it. And so I think that if there's significant pressure, we will be able to make a strong case that uh, we need to protect the most vulnerable folks. All right, Mazdaq, thank you very much for joining us this morning. Okay, thank you. That's Mazdaq Garab Nawaz talking about the Vancouver Tenants Union and how they feel on the issue of the government now saying, okay, we're lifting the ban on evictions in September and renters who haven't paid their rent have to figure out a way to do that between now and next July. But as Mazdaq pointed out as well, it is 3% of people who deferred their rent 
12% of renters who partially uh, deferred as well. The government's argument there is that the major, vast majority of renters uh, were paying their rent on time. But again, things haven't fully shaken out yet. People aren't just going to magically return back to work in September and October. So we don't fully know what the impact of all of that is. This is Mornings with Simi. We should be using masks on transit all the time. I do, and I expect others to as well. That's Dr. Bonnie Henry's thoughts on wearing masks on transit. What is the catchphrase? One of the ones that she has? Few faces in large spaces. Boy, she is so good at coming up with those. Uh, So Provincial Health Officer Dr. Bonnie Henry has been using that and other phrases for months. And even though on public transit, you can't exactly say few faces, she thinks wearing the mask is the way to go. So how are they doing with that? Well, let's find out. TransLink spokesperson Ben Murphy joins us now. Good morning, Ben. Morning, Simi. How is ridership going? Well, ridership is slowly recovering on transit. We do know it's going to be a fairly long road to get back to where we were pre-COVID. The last numbers I saw, which were last week, demonstrate that we were around 40% or so system-wide compared to the same time last year. So it's a slow and gradual uptick, and we expect that that will continue, but it's going to take some time, no doubt about that, to get back to where we were pre-pandemic. And what, what are the protocols like then? How do you deal with the cleaning and all of that now? So we have our safe operating action plan, which is in place, uh, and that has a fairly significant cleaning regime across every mode. So SkyTrain has pit crews at key station locations. You've got disinfecting sprays for the bus and sea bus twice a week in addition to their daily cleans. Uh, Pretty much on any vehicle you go on, uh, they've stepped up the cleaning game. On the handy dart, they're getting cleaned and disinfected every day. Uh, A couple of other measures that we have in place on the buses, we're limiting capacity to two-thirds instead of full capacity. Uh, And on SkyTrain, we have that fair gate policy where we uh, limit the amount of people coming through onto the platform. So we have one entry fair gate. So we have a number of measures in place to try and either A, uh, promote uh, physical distancing where possible, or B, uh, cleanliness. And of course, a big part of this is our Wearing is Caring campaign. Uh, promoting the use of masks or face coverings on public transit. Now, I would love to get my hands on one of those TransLink masks, but it sure looks like those have been pretty popular. They have been, yes. We um, we put some TransLink masks on the store. We had about 400 or so as our initial order, and they sold out uh, within a day. So we've now ordered several thousand of those. So they'll be back online coming few weeks. Uh, we've also got our uh, free masks, which we've been handing out around the system. We've distributed around 6,000 or so, so far. We have another 30,000 of those on order as well. Um, so they are a fairly hot commodity. Yes. And we continue to supply those as, <laughs> as long as there's interest. And I suspect there'll be interest for quite some time. Well, listen, I signed up on the website. I put my email in there because they are adorable and I would love to have one. But it's encouraging, I think, that people are wanting to buy them and that people are using them. Is there enough uptake, do you think, on transit of mask wearing? Uh, there's no doubt we'd like to see more. Uh, there is no doubt that there's more work to do and we are going to continue to push our, our Wearing is Caring campaign uh, because we would like to see more people on transit wearing masks or face coverings. It really depends route by route or, or various modes on how many people in a particular given time of wearing a mask or face covering, but we would definitely like to see more. And so that's a part of our continuous
continued push, and Dr Henry's word there that you played in the intro, of course very relevant, we would reflect that view that if people are travelling on transit and they're able to wear a mask or face covering, then they should absolutely be doing it. It's not so much about uh, protecting yourself, it's protecting others around you, and that is uh, crucially important, especially as more people return to the system. Right. Is that, what, is that what you guys are planning for then? Say, looking ahead to September, do you think there will be an increase in ridership? We think so. I mean, judge, judging on what we've seen so far, ridership has been slowly increasing. So if you were to, to look at that over time, you would estimate that slowly more people are going to continue returning to the system. Uh, I know a lot of workplaces, and this is more anecdotal from my experience, are sort of aiming for a September-ish return to the work uh, site. Uh, so you might begin to see a bit more of an uptick there. So our best estimates are that, yes, we will slowly see people return. But of course, COVID is a pretty unpredictable situation. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if there was to be a second wave or anything like that, obviously that would, um, you know, that would cause a, a lot of complications in terms of ridership growth. So looking ahead, then the one message that you have for people is to please, uh, please keep wearing the mask. Like it sounds like, Ben, not enough people are getting that message. Yeah, that's right. We'd like to see more people wearing masks on transit. Uh, and a lot of people do, uh, but we want to see uh, even more. And so we're continuing to install uh, decals, signage, uh, advertising. We've got a number of campaign elements coming up uh, later in the summer and fall. So we're going to be uh, continuing to, to push that because it's really important as more people go onto the system uh, that we are seeing a large amount of most people wearing a mask or face covering. So we'll definitely continue to push that message uh, and, uh, you know, explain to people, I guess, what the benefits are and why they should be doing it and that it's for others, not for you. Now, is there any plan, like I'm sure you, you're looking at a lot of, you know, outcomes and planning for the future. At what point do you think TransLink might start to see ridership close to where we were a year ago? Uh, it's very difficult to say uh, at this stage. H- hard to know. I mean, we're at sort of 40-ish percent now. Um, it- it's hard to say definitively when you're going to get back to those pre-COVID levels because uh, we'll see around September, I think, what-, what it's looking like then. And at that point, we'll have a much better gauge on where ridership is going. So um, it-, it can be a bit of a fool's game to try and do predictions uh, with ridership in this climate. But um, I think around September we'll have a much better idea of, of where we're positioned longer term. So kind of tricky to say. All right, we'll find out. Ben, thank you. Thanks, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. So our theme today is discussing what we're seeing out there. Are people becoming too lax when it comes to following the rules to fight COVID-19? Not enough social distancing going on. Certainly see that out there. Not enough people wearing masks. Of course, that's not mandated here, but we know that it's the right thing to do. I think most people know that it's the right thing to do. But even when it comes to social distancing and all those other rules, it just feels like people aren't paying as much attention as they were a month or two months ago. And we're starting to see those numbers tick back up again. And that is a concern. So Dr. Stephen Taylor is our guest. He's a professor in the Department of Psychiatry at UBC and the author of The Psychology of Pandemics, Preparing for the Next Global Outbreak of Infectious Disease, just published last October. Dr. Taylor, thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much, Simi. Boy, that book came out just in time, didn't it? <laughs> uh, yeah, I knew a pandemic was coming, but I didn't think it would come that soon. Why did you think a pandemic was coming? 
Well, um, I got interested. I started writing a book in 2018. Um, that was in September of the Spanish. And at that time, uh, there were a number of interviews with virologists I was reading, and they were all predicting that it was inevitable that there would be a pandemic. Um, and so that's what got me interested in that. I thought it would be an influenza pandemic, and that's what everyone was predicting, not a coronavirus one. But you know, nonetheless, it was, it's inevitable that there will be another pandemic even after this one uh, is over. Okay. Do we learn our lessons, though? Like, because this has happened before, we know what works, we know what doesn't work. Do we learn our lessons? Uh, yes and no. We've learned some lessons. For example, the WA show did a great job in naming this virus. If we called it Wuhan bat flu, that would have been a disaster. You don't name viruses after people, places, or things because that promotes discrimination, racism, and things like that. So that lesson we learned. Other lessons, not so much. We should have anticipated the problems with um, people refusing to wear masks, that's happened before. And just about everything else we're seeing in this pandemic has happened before as well. I've been reading up on this. I just read about the great pandemic of 1918. And boy, it, it sounds so familiar. You're right. The arguments about social distancing and face masks, we've been here before. Exactly. I mean, there was the Anti-Mask League formed in uh, San Francisco uh, that the the arguments then are the same now. These people argued they didn't think masks were helpful and they thought it violated their civil, civil liberties. So it's the same thing. So, Dr. Taylor, how do we... It seems that people are getting a little lax about the rules, right? Like we were good for a couple months there and people just kind of want things to go back to normal. How do we prevent that from happening? Well, we need to understand it first. And the longer this drags out, the, the lower the compliance will be. Particularly in this pandemic, it's, it's a kind of a hidden pandemic. We don't see corpses on the street. We don't see coffins everywhere uh, in comparison to, say, the Spanish flu. And so um, for some people, they, um, they downplay it. They think the whole thing is exaggerated. Then they get lax and stop wearing masks and so forth. Um, what do we do about that? I, I guess the, the thing we need to do is to remind ourselves that wearing a mask, we're not just doing it for ourselves. We're doing it for our community. We're doing it for the people who are vulnerable for medical reasons. Right, but even though that message doesn't seem to be getting through, is this just a, a human nature thing? Like, you've been studying the psychology of it. Is this just the way people are? It is. It's a human nature thing, and unfortunately, um, this will provoke a second wave or a spike in infections as people as the summertime arrives and people want to get out and get back to their lives and get out and party um, inevitably there will be another wave of infection I don't see any easy way around that yeah you've studied this then what would that in your opinion what's that second wave look like potentially well in, during the Spanish flu um, that, that was very different the second wave caught people unawares they thought oh the pandemic is over we can get back to our lives when the second wave hit, it was more lethal than the first one, and that caught people uh, by surprise. This time around, we're all expecting a second wave, so we are prepared in a sense. But the big question is, how are we all going to deal with lockdown the second time around when we're told, OK, you've got to go back into your homes, you've got to stock up and stay inside? Um, how are people going to cope with that? Are people going to adhere to that? I think they will. There will be some grumbling, but um, people are resilient and they will uh, learn to adapt with the so-called new normal. But are we going to what, start lining up for toilet paper again? Uh, well, actually, it's been happening in Australia. <laughs> They've been putting limits. There's been more panic buying of toilet paper uh, and uh, panic buying of other things. Um, I think that's, that could happen again, unfortunately. 
Okay. So then how do you, when you studied this and you looked at how pandemics work, what is the normal cycle of this? Like, when can we expect to turn a corner on it? Well, the thing is, pandemics, are, they're not static events, they're dynamic. Everything unfolds rapidly and people adapt very quickly. Um, a lot of it is going to depend on what happens with this coronavirus. If it disappears like SARS disappeared, that would be great and life would very rapidly return to normal. People would be back out hugging, shaking hands and so forth. I think you'd be surprised at how quickly life would return to normal if, if this disappeared. Um, but if it doesn't disappear, if it becomes... Um, entrenched in our communities, it becomes something like a, a seasonal outbreak, then that could make life very different. It could create more germophobes in our society as people become increasingly worried about getting infected. Right. So, but as you said, like we should be used to this. It's, it's going to happen again. This isn't just a one-off. Uh, exactly. But, you know, wishful thinking is a powerful thing. and People want this to go away. People want to get back to their own lives. And that wishful thinking um, drives people's behavior. It gets people back out um, partying in, in the past huh. and so forth. It leads to uh, declines in um, uh, adherence to social distancing. So do you think wishful thinking then is more powerful than kind of logic and common sense? It can be. It can be under some circumstances. Yeah. So that kind of is, is what the driver is for people's behavior. It's one of the drivers. It's, it's a complex issue. For some people, they overestimate the threat and become very anxious and housebound. Um, then there's the middle group who more or less do their best to, to get through this. And then there's the, the other extreme of people who think the whole thing is overblown and it's exaggerated. They don't see themselves at risk. And they're the ones who uh, don't do the social distancing and so forth. Isn't it funny, though, the way you describe that? There are absolutely are groups like that, but everybody thinks that they're the only ones who feel that way or they're the only one. But yet this is a time-honored tradition of people responding like this. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, sadly, uh, we're behaving just as we've behaved in previous pandemics and outbreaks. Okay, so you're not surprised then by what you're hearing and seeing out there? No, not at all. It's, it's, uh, the only difference between this pandemic and previous outbreaks is this is the first pandemic in the era of social media and digital connectivity. So we're all globally connected. So we're getting at the 24-7 news cycle. We're seeing images throughout the world. So that's speeding up things. So the whole uh, panic buying of toilet paper, for example, that happened in, in a few isolated areas of the planet, but rapidly got spread throughout the globe and started, started a wave. It, it precipitated it. So things are the same fundamentally, panic buying, for example, but things are happening more rapidly. All right. Dr. Taylor, thank you very much for your time on this. You're very welcome, Simon. Well, what an interesting discussion that we just had with Dr. Stephen Taylor. I'm becoming more and more fascinated by the psychology of, you know, our response to pandemics. And, you know, you notice that you look around, people are just ready to have things over with, even though the virus has said, whoa, whoa, I'm not going anywhere yet. And something that Dr. Taylor said really stuck with me, that wishful thinking can be more powerful than logic and common sense. And he said, yes, that is true in a lot of cases, meaning we would like everything to get back to normal. So we kind of get start getting back to normal. And yet logic and common sense tell us it is not yet time to let everything go back to normal. So we're asking you what you've seen out there. Do you think people are being too lax? Are they forgetting about social distancing, physical distancing? Are they, you know, not wearing, not enough people wearing masks out there? We've had some calls to our buzz line. Have a listen. Regarding the wearing of masks, Timmy, if you look at it like smoking, 
people used to smoke all the time in hospitals and offices and school lunchrooms. And so, no, that would be unheard of because of the way society has changed how we perceive smoking. And I think you can do the same thing with masks. Just smoke shame them. Look at them crazy if they're not wearing a mask. Give them the old, ooh, what are you doing? I get the message. <laughs> you know what? You make an excellent point. You're right. There was a time when asking people to not smoke indoors made you seem like a crazy person. Uh, and we don't even consider doing that anymore. Do you think we can get there with masks, though? That's the problem. I had a couple of emails on this as well. Jerry wrote me about the people who were protesting and said, you know, these people who are protesting masks are the same people who'll be at the hospital demanding help. As soon as they get sick, he says they're selfish by ultimately putting frontline workers in danger. He said maybe they need to be identified and sent to the back of the line. Well, they're identified, Jerry. They're all over the news. You can see them right there. They're making no secret about that. Again, if you want to weigh in, the idea, the question we're asking you today is, are we forgetting what made BC so successful in flattening the curve? Are we forgetting to physical distance? Are we forgetting that masks make a difference? Are people just being too lax? You can email me, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, let's catch up now with someone that we spoke to a couple of weeks ago here on the show. Do you remember a woman named Val Brandt? Well, she started a petition to have the Jubilee Fountain in Lost Lagoon renamed after Dr. Bonnie Henry. And she says that after that first interview aired right here on the station, she saw a pretty good increase in support for her petition. So we thought, let's check in, find out how many people they've gotten signed up for this thing, who likes this idea of renaming Jubilee Fountain after Dr. Bonnie Henry, and where do things stand now? Well, our Nikki Reitmeyer caught up with Val, who started the conversation by reminding us what first inspired this whole idea. Well, it was so discouraging to, to see the fountain in Lost Lagoon sitting idle for several years. And I suddenly thought, what a win-win it would be uh, if we could get that magnificent fountain back up and running again and have it renamed the Dr. Bonnie Henry Fountain, you know, as a, a gesture of gratitude to her for guiding us through this frightening pandemic. She's such a calming wonderful, intelligent person to, to keep us going. And, and BC is doing so well because of her. What, you know, it would just be a win-win if we, if we did both of those things, got the fountain up and, and thanked her at the same time. I think it's a great idea. You know, we've seen so many tributes to Dr. Bonnie Henry, her faces being on murals. There's a pair of shoes that have been named after her. But the fountain, you know, it really does seem like a perfect match. Like any fountain it is, it's really soothing to look at. It is. And, and water is, is life. And uh, the fountain is, is life-giving. And when you look at it, it, it really feels healing. And uh, yeah, I thought it was just an absolutely perfect symbol. Well, you can't be the only one who felt that way because you've been getting a lot of public support for this idea. Can you tell me about the petition that you started? Well, I thought it was a good idea. Uh, so I started a petition to see if other people agreed, and it took off thanks to well, CKNW and, and the listeners. It, I, I first had 75 names after you know, emailing all my friends and saying, hey, sign this petition. And the next thing I thought, we're going to need some more awareness. And uh, all of a sudden, you know, I, was, I was on the CKNW morning show for a, a few moments, and the numbers started taking off 
a minute after, and they haven't stopped. As of this morning, we've got over 1,250 signatures, and it just keeps going up and up and up. You know that you've hit on something big when you start to get people that you don't even know, strangers who are signing your petition. I know. It was really, it was really heartening to... Uh, to see all the, and to read all the comments. If you go to the, uh, if you if you go to thankbonniehenry.com to sign, you can see all the comments that people have written, in. and it's just everyone is just so excited about it, and and yes, let's do it, and and it would be a wonderful tribute to this amazing person, and I love the fountain, and I love Dr. Bonnie, and you know, great ideas, great comments, and uh, yeah, we keep we plan to keep the petition going a little while longer. So what's next? Where does the petition or where does your plan go from here? I don't know really where to take this next exactly. I mean, I appreciate it's a fairly big undertaking, but not excessively so. I mean, the fountain is already there and it's worked perfectly for over 80 years. So it's not a gamble. You know, what's really interesting is that the fountain was built in 1936, which was smack in the middle of the Great Depression. So, you know, during a, re- a recession, government, and we are in a recession, you know, we know that. Governments do invest in public works. It, you know, it gets the economy going. It gives people something to be happy about, to be proud of. It's, and this is fountain isn't just putting a plaque on a wall. It's, it's something we can all enjoy. Everybody who signed did so because they want to make the Dr. Bonnie Henry Fountain happen. And I owe it to them to make sure that their wishes get into the right hands. So it's a public works project, definitely not my area. So I will be reaching out to the people, of course, at the Vancouver Park Board, the mayor's office, maybe the MP and MLA, and and asking them for their counsel to make sure the petition is handed over to the right people because it's their decision and they're the the doers. And uh, hopefully they'll make the Dr. Bonnie Henry Fountain, a beautiful reality. All right. So that is Val Brandt, and she has organized this petition. So if you're interested in helping out, if you would like to add your name to this, you can find it online, thankbonniehenry.com. Very simple, right? And what they're asking is enough, you know, signatures on that petition so that they can petition the park board and say, let's rename Jubilee Fountain after Dr. Bonnie Henry. So if you like that idea, check it out, thankbonniehenry.com. This is Mornings with Simi. You have undoubtedly been seeing and hearing in the news this morning information about this early results of these uh, vaccines against COVID-19 that are being quite promising, showing quite promising results right now. So we thought, let's get some more information about these. Uh, Joining us is Jason Tetro, an infectious disease expert, also, of course, course, host of the Super Awesome Science Show podcast. And he has worked to combat infectious diseases before, including the SARS epidemic. Good morning, Jason. Hello there. So is this promising? Like, should we get our hopes up about this? Yeah, um, this is actually very good news. Uh, I've been reading through the study uh, for for most of the morning, and I got to tell you something, you know, when you see um, some of the pitfalls that uh, other vaccines have run into, 
Uh, and I'm not just talking about for uh, SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19, but also others, including HIV in that. Um, th- this seems to have sort of taken all of that into consideration, and they've come up with something that looks like it's going to be able to help the majority of the population and maybe help us to uh, drop that curve down to a point where we don't really need to be worrying too much about the lockdowns right. and the physical separations and that type of thing. So how close are they? Like, how promising is this? in terms of, yeah, this is great news, but when can I get it? Well, this is what we call a phase one, two. Um, You don't normally see that. Normally, you have to go through phase one, which is safety, uh, phase two, which is does it work, and then there's phase three after that, which is does it work in a a population. Uh, They've done the phase one and two, so yes, it's safe. you know, in terms of side effects, there were a few, but most of them can be handled by uh, just something like uh, aspirin or, or even Tylenol. Um, and then the second phase is, does it actually give you some kind of immunity? And the answer to that is, yes, it does. Um, and it does it in a way that's going to be um, essentially keeping you protected for at least, uh, in this particular case, they were looking at uh, two, uh, two months, but it looks like it'll probably go on possibly for half a year to maybe a full year. So in that sense, it seems really good. Now what they have to do is they have to go into the war, sort of the wider population and start testing people. And sort of just to give you an idea, when they did this particular study, they had close to or over a 1,000 people, um, but they excluded something like 800 of them so that they would only take the ones that actually fit into the parameters necessary to be sure that they knew that this thing would work. Okay, so that's promising. And how how different is it then, Jason, from other groups? This is the one being done in conjunction with AstraZeneca. Mm -hmm. I know that Pfizer is also doing one in conjunction with a Vancouver company. There's all sorts of groups that are racing to get the vaccine. Are they all different? Most of them are going to be different in one way or another. Um, When you have a a virus like uh, SARS-CoV-2, um, there's essentially a few ways that you can work with it. So if you take the old-fashioned way, you essentially have what is known as an attenuated version. Uh, and, and what that means is um, it'll get inside of you, it'll replicate, but it won't cause infection or symptoms. That's one option. Uh, another is to kill it before it goes into your body. Um, we see that uh, as being a possible option. And now, thanks to genetic engineering, what we can do is we can actually break it down into pieces and take those pieces and start giving them to people. So we can take the uh, genetic material, the mRNA, uh, we give you a vaccine that has that, or maybe we take certain proteins and we give you that. And then finally, there's a, a method that's been around for about 10 years, and I've known some of the people who were sort of involved in doing this. Um, it's taking a similar virus or a virus that we're all used to, like a cold virus, uh, in this case, adenovirus 5, And then you modify that in such a way so that it actually produces pieces of the virus you want to have an immune response to, in this case, SARS-CoV-2. When you do that, what's happening is you are actually creating an immune response that's already kind of there because you're, you know, you have to deal with a common cold. But then while that is happening, inadvertently, you start developing an immune response to the virus that is your target, whether it be, you know, SARS-CoV-2 in this case, HIV in previous cases, and others. So that is what this particular study is about. So they've taken a common cold virus, they've modified it, they've actually put in pieces of the SARS-CoV-2 protein 
then they give it to the individuals, they develop an immune response to the common cold, and voila, you actually have a virus uh, neutralizing capability that takes care of SARS-CoV-2 as well. Huh. Okay, you just described it so well to us there. That's perfect. So have we ever seen, though, Jason, such a concerted effort to make this happen? Like It's like teams racing against each other. Well, yes. It's just that when we did this for HIV, and, and I was sort of involved with some of, the, some of my colleagues were doing this, the problem was is that um, they wanted to have the neutralizing antibodies, right? So you've probably heard that term. It's your, your antibody response. Well, what ended up happening is that even though there was a really good antibody response, what ended up happening was that the virus was actually still getting into the cells that it wanted to get into and started wasting people away. And in some cases, it made it even more um, deadly, the, the virus, if you got infected. So we have to think about that. Now, this particular study has looked at it from a different perspective where it's not just the antibodies, but also looking at the cell response. In other words, your T cells, if you want to, uh, and, and, and what we call, you know, adaptive responses. Mm-hmm. They did this for HIV and they've been getting some success. And now you've probably heard about people who are sort of getting cured of this. Yeah. Well, it's the same thing. It's just that in this particular case, you're going to get a shot as opposed to a regimen of treatments. And that's going to get you to a point where you're going to have that full protection. And that's really where this concerted effort has come from. We no longer are focusing on just one thing. We're focusing on so many different aspects, and one of them is going to hit home, and we're really going to be able to take care of this virus. Oh, I hope so. Jason, thank you so much for your time. Oh, it was a pleasure. Take care. You too. That's Jason Tetro, infectious disease expert and host of the Super Awesome Science Show podcast, talking about the news today that the early results show that that UK COVID-19 vaccine uh, has some very promising results. They're saying it's safe. It induces an immune reaction, which is what they're looking for. So you'll be hearing more about that in the news.